Hello there and welcome to episode 69 of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. This week I'm really excited to introduce you to Joe Menon from Menon Associates, aka the Mojo Project. Joe is such an interesting character, someone that works on some major global uh, change projects, um, but also someone that operates with a deep presence and calm. Uh, those two things are a rare combination, certainly in my, uh, my experience to date. So just as we get going, a couple of things to whet your appetite about this conversation. One of the two really, really cool comments that um, Joe made, one is that we are not just robotic in our actions um, in the world of work, but also in our thinking. Just want to leave that with you for a second as we, uh, as we marinate into this conversation. And also, Joe speaks about the fact that if you work effectively and not just fast, you will get stuff done. And this reminds me of Rebecca Monique uh, back on episode 60, I believe it was, where she spoke about the importance of velocity over speed. So enjoy this conversation. As always, uh, Joe and I would be deeply grateful for any feedback you offer via social media or directly to either or both of us. And uh, we look forward to you enjoying the conversation and joining in with us. Hope to hear from you soon. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And I've got a very awesome human opposite me today in Joe Menon from the Mojo Project. Hello, Joe. Hi, Gary. Lovely to see you again. Likewise. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And for our listeners who are joining us on this conversation today, would you mind just giving a bit more background? Who is Joe? You know, what is the Mojo Project and what are you passionate about, Joe? So um, I am a permanent interim. I set up my business about 12, 13 years ago to coincide with a fairly um, terrifying experience I had um, while pregnant with my first child. And essentially, I had to take voluntary redundancy from my employer at the time um, and went into a fairly um, terrifying, as I've mentioned, um, health scare, um, which we'll talk about, I think, Gary, won't be in a bit more detail. Um, at the time, I had clearly identified that my whole identity was my work. I was burnt out. I was completely exhausted. Um, and being pregnant as well, that clearly was a fairly toxic combination. Um, so I had to take 12 months off. Um, and very long story short, needed to find my mojo. Now, what I didn't know then, because I had come from quite a corporate, very structured, quite black and white environment, was that whilst I was setting my business up as Men and Associates Limited, um, really I was looking for something else as well. So I went straight back into HR consultancy, which is very much where, where I'd come from as a background, um, doing IT projects specifically around HR software. Um, and at the time was also doing all sorts of fun stuff in, in finding myself, want a better word, you like have my midlife crisis 10 years early, um, and was continually seeking that inspiration as opposed to motivation. I've always been pretty self-motivated. Getting out of bed to go to work has never been a problem. Um, but getting out of bed to go to work to really love what I do to a point where it didn't feel like work was still quite hard to find. So long story short I'd always loved horses um, I got back into horses after my health recovered and um, started training as an equine facilitated learning coach I also did all sorts of other fun things like um, train as a Reiki master um, which was um, clearly quite um, uh, out there particularly coming from the environment and background I come from in corporate 
um, and did all sorts of other wacky things as well. Um, hence, I think I think my Twitter personage is something like the corporate hippie or something like that. Um, I like to do things differently, but more importantly, I like to see people find things fun because generally if you're having fun and you're enjoying what you do you've kind of in that sweet spot which means you're going to do great work mm. if you're stressed if you're fearful if you're upset any of the above you're not going to do your best work which means forget mojo for a minute you're just going to hate being there so i'm not sure that's really an introduction but it's a it's a whistle stop tour gary I love it. No, it's, 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 it's a great whistle stop tour and an intro. And I, and I really love what you spoke about that. Even though you had the motivation, I think it's really powerful. So you were motivated by your work, you weren't necessarily always inspired by it. And I think there's another level there, which is really interesting that we don't always talk about. So many people are still talking about happiness and almost survival. Like if I can be happy, I can survive at work yeah. and thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not just want to be there, but actively encourage other people to be there too mm. um, and convince people that it's not just a great place to work which is a cheesy one-liner that I'm, I'm not sure I've heard any company not use um, but you know great place to work is kind of very very sort of um, old school now but um, where work just feels part of life so we see a lot don't we about work-life balance well actually by the way it's all the same thing <laughs> um, and that doesn't mean that you need to be on all the time but I, you know, I do think there's a real um, blend around lifestyle business. And I don't mean lifestyle business because it doesn't make you any money. I mean lifestyle business because it actually gives you a life. Um, and it feels completely seamless. But where you have um, very clear walls between when you're available and when you're on and when you're off. And when you're off, you're as productive a little bit, you know, there's a great um, uh, uh, phrase and then sort of um, Mimi going around social media, um, which essentially says, you know, like your phone, um, turn it off for a bit, unplug it for a bit. And it's amazing how productive it is afterwards. Most things work better when you unplug them. And I truly believe that's, you know, absolutely right. Um, maybe not a good night's sleep, but the following day, everything feels better. Well, well, I think one of my favourite things I really smiled um, was get receiving your out of office. Um, it's uh, one of the, just a brilliant, brilliant example of that. So a bit of fun, but a very clear message that you are unplugging. And that yeah. I, I just the reason I smiled so much is I have one little cheeky thing in my corporate role, Joe, which is have a nice day with a smiley face and a thumbs up. Like that, that for me is disruptive in my organisation. Yeah. So, like to actually put a blanket like this will not be seen i'm having a lovely family holiday yeah. leave me alone but i will come back to you when i get back you know like, what's wrong with that i think that's a really human out of office that you put out which is just wonderful well it, it also should inspire confidence in my customers that when i'm with them i'm 100 percent with them mm. and you know, that, that kind of focused attention is something that we talk a great game about, but we don't often do. And, and you and I both know, Gary, how regularly you go into a meeting and people are on their phones. You know, even on a WebEx like this, they're, they're looking out the window. And I have less of a problem about that because that might actually be quite an, an important sort of energy um, giver. But, you know, they're tapping away on one of these or they're responding to somebody coming in the door. And actually, that focus attention isn't there. That, that, that focus is somewhere else. So, you know, for, from my perspective, it's not just about productivity. It's about making sure your customers... Um, get the best from you and your customers don't get the best from you if you're exhausted 
So I want to go back a little bit into your history now. Really, really. I love it. I love it whenever I come across someone that says vibrant, energetic, positive, making a difference like you are, Joe. And I'm sorry to be stereotypical. You've got a law degree. So like, how did that all marry up together? I'm really fascinated. I'm not sure I'm allowed to swear on this, though. So I'll, I'll keep it clean. It's a family show after all going. Um, essentially, I'm a failed artist. So I, I had two choices. I, I, I went around um, India for about nine months during my gap year. And I knew I wanted, well, I thought I wanted to go to art college. So I thought, okay, and this is back in quite a long time ago, <clears throat> um, uh, back into the 90s. And, um, you know, something else quite a long time ago, isn't it? Um, so I, I knew I wanted to, to go to art college, um, but I also knew I had to work for a living. So I have a very much a, uh, a creative brain that was also a finisher completer. And um, so I looked at the clearing magazines. Do you remember those? We used to get them in the Times on the Sunday when it was. I looked at the clearing magazine and I kind of went, okay, well, Falmouth, which is where I want to go to art college, don't have any spaces. Oh, that's a pain. It's perfect. I can't afford to. Um, but actually, UWE, as in Bristol, UWE, University of the West of England, have got some courses and they look quite interesting. So I had a quick look at those and I saw LLB. I had no idea what LLB was at the time. So I investigated and went, law. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I registered for a law degree. <clears throat> um, and it really was as simple as that. Of course, I did an interview, which they always did at the time, but it was over the phone. Um, I, I really enjoy business and I always have done. I've been working since I was 13, 14 in various little enterprises from grooming jobs to car washing to everything in between. I worked as a bartender. I've worked as a polo groom. I've worked as a nanny. I've worked um, as a teacher. I've worked as a, a translator. I've done all sorts of bits and pieces. And, and the one thing that kind of stemmed through was an interest for knowledge, but also an interest for the um, small guy. The person who can't be, speak for themselves. And in India, what I learned firsthand was that it's not about shouting the loudest. It's not about um, anything actually other than um, being in the right place at the right time, but also sometimes life is hard. And as a lawyer, I felt I could actually do something to make that better. Now, hey ho, that's. <laughs> <laughs> probably cynical as this might sound that's not always the case when you actually get involved in the law which is what I discovered three or four years later which is why I'm not now not just a failed artist I'm also a failed lawyer because I didn't actually do anything with a law degree other than to go straight into business mm -hmm. um, so I hope that answers your question Gary <laughs> but, but you know, what's wonderful though is that you still you followed you followed your nose you followed your curiosity and I think you know the, one of the big themes of this podcast of course are the really human skills so you can use the word failed artist, failed lawyer, but they're experiences, experiences that have informed where you are now. And, and I'm being quite facetious because, you know, they, they both stood me in great stead. So, you know, my, my son is now nearly 13. He's, he's a very accomplished um, artist already. And, you know, we have great fun sort of looking through my old scrapbooks and, and, and um, portfolios and things. And that's also quite a nice, you know, thing for us to share together, which goes, OK, well, let's try this out. You know, all sorts of crazy projects in the kitchen where you think, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to have a kitchen again. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's a great experience, as you say. <laughs> and how, how do you blend this? Stuff? So what I'm really fascinated in, as our listeners get to learn a bit more about you on this conversation, mm -hmm. is you get involved in some pretty meaty projects. As you mentioned, you're into HRIT, you know, you do a lot of stuff around change, coaching, etc. And you're clearly very artistic. You've got that very strong blend of left and right brain that everybody talks about. I mean, you're a science point of view. 
How do you blend those effectively when you're dealing with some of these big change projects? Do you find that that blend really does support your ability to make a difference in some of these projects? Um, yes and no. So, so the first thing is I can't be everything for everybody. Um, and I learned that hardware, as I mentioned um, earlier on, so 12, 13 years ago, when I sort of came crashing down with this fairly almighty burnout. Um, for me, it's about two things. Firstly, being very clear about what you can and can't do. And secondly, surrounding yourself with people who can um, do the things you're not good at. Um, or make sure that where your blind spots are, and being very clear on what those are, are covered. So I am good at getting stuff done. I'm good at bringing people with me and I'm good at um, finishing and not just finishing, but making absolutely sure that people don't feel like it was terrifying getting there. So if you like, and it's, it's an Eastern philosophy to some extent, if you like, they don't miss you when you've gone. What I'm not good at, and which is why I always make sure I have good people in this space is the nitty gritty day-to-day -day detail of completing, not just the task, because we will get the task done, but making absolutely sure we have all of the bits and pieces and component parts. Yeah. What I'm less good at is appreciating that people won't necessarily work in my way. So making sure I have people around me, which I do, and I'm, I'm lucky and I've, I've spent a lot of time honing, honing and working with these guys making sure they bring them along that goes it's okay goes very calm but that doesn't mean she's missed anything i am or i will always try and come across as incredibly calm because i think that's very important not just for the end customer who is paying for that service and for that delivery but i also think it's very important that the teams around you whether it's from the vendor so from the software house themselves all the end customer or anybody else in between feels that it's not insurmountable that it is something we can all do and in, in a pressure valve that most corporates are particularly when it's a, a slightly more pressing project which everybody thinks they're pressing projects right um that we're not running a hospital that it's not life or death and i often use that trite example because it's really important sometimes when people are really really stressed to say right let's just take a step back let's brush ourselves down we might have had a rubbish day but it's one rubbish day and tomorrow, the, you know, the sun's going to rise again, whether we like it or not, and we're going to start again. Um, and I think it's really, really important for, for me to keep that calm in the team. Um, it's what's really powerful for me, what you just described there, Joe, is that I've spoke to Kirsten Holder previously, who does a bit of work with the NHS. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually spoke about the fact that indeed, the, some of the teams in the NHS are some of the most effective because they are the ones that are, as you say, they're dealing with life, she are dealing with life or death, and they bring together these self-organized teams continuously, they disband, they come back, they disband, they come back, and they just work brilliantly. And like, we're not dealing with that day to day, so it is okay to stop and get present and to reflect and to discuss, but we don't prize it, do we, in most corporate environments? Well, well, I think that's because we're continually looking for something tangible to say, right, I've ticked a box, I've checked a box, I have achieved X and it is a tangible thing or it's a series of objectives when actually, as we all know, the real value isn't just in checking that box and in ticking off that objective. It's also making absolutely sure we can take that forward. And often in a, in a fairly um, tangible project, like a software project or an IT project, it's very clear about what the end result could, should be. 
But we all know that the system might be absolutely brilliant that you're implementing. But if nobody around you knows how to use it, or the system isn't fit for your organization, it's a complete waste of time. And, you know, back to your point, Gary, I think, you know, as a result, it's bringing people with you. And that takes time. I can build a system with most providers within a six to eight week period for any scale. But what use is that if nobody knows how to use it or wants to use it? Now, we can train people within that time scale too. It's ambitious, but it's achievable. But again, people take time to get to that space of actually wanting to. And so my job and the team's job isn't just about implementing a system. It's about building desire. Mm. That's, this, this is, I'm, I'm really reflecting. Well, the thing is for me, Joe, so there's organizations quite close to me and some in my network where mm. there, is, there is very real human suffering occurring mm. because there are multiple concurrent IT projects which are focused solely on meeting a deadline time and not at all on the human impact of meeting those deadlines. And we're talking like off work, burnout, there is serious suffering going on in some, some organizations that I am aware of and they just will not slow down because they've promised something to the shareholders of the board that that system will be in by X date and everything else is collateral damage and acceptable. And that's happening in 2019. No, it's, it's absolutely happening. I'm, I'm speaking with a couple of customers at the moment where they're, they're getting through IT program directors like they're getting through lunch. Um, and that's not okay. So again, it takes a brave person, but in my opinion, an effective person to say, I'm putting my hand up to this and saying, this is not acceptable. And if you don't have broad enough shoulders, Ms. CEO, Mr. Miss, whoever it is, or head of HR or IT or whoever, then I'm stepping out. Now that sounds arrogant, but I think that's a really important stand to take. And I don't see that enough, which is where the people leading the projects simply push as hard as the people they're being pushed by, as opposed to pushing up. So um, I'm not saying I'm not fearless, everybody has fear. Um, but I do think it's a very important point, and I know Gary, you and I spoke about this briefly before the call, um, just around walking the talk on bravery. It's very easy to talk a great game when it comes to courage. It's very easy to do it when you feel safe. A lot harder to do it when you've got people shouting at you. However, if you're very clear about what you can and can't do, and more importantly, what you will and won't do, which is about value. So that's slightly different. Then I'm convinced you will be able to turn around a board and or whoever in what is not a life or death project. So one of my first points to most people when they say, oh, but we have to have it in by Christmas or we have to have it in by year end is we've well, managed so far for the last 10 years without it. And that might sound terribly negative, but it's a really important thing for your teams to hear, which is you've managed so far, life hasn't ended. And so therefore let's do this properly. Because otherwise this time next year, we'll be doing it all over again. It doesn't mean we do it slowly. It means we do it properly, which is slightly different. God, so, so many questions. And you know what makes me laugh? Yes. Your, your Twitter handle does have corporate hippie. It's really interesting because a lot of people listening to us now would think corporate hippie, 
into her mindfulness, maybe slowing down presence. But as you said, you get stuff done. And I think that's what's really powerful messaging for me as we talk is just because you're empathetic, you know, you've got presence, you've got the ability to slow down doesn't mean you're not effective. It's what makes me effective. Yeah. So when I'm going a thousand miles an hour and I'm in inverted commas manic, I'm completely ineffective as are all the people around me. And it, it took me a long time to realize that and actually do something with it. But the, I truly believe because I've seen it so many times. This is my 18th project, by the way. Wow. And we've completed all of them to time and budget. And we haven't done that because I'm superhuman. We've done that simply because if you work effectively, not fast, you will get stuff done. And I don't just believe that. I know that because proof is in the pudding. And all corporates, all business, all charities, everything in between work on the basis of what you actually do, not what you say you'll do. And you and I both know that that's your real value. But I, I do want to talk about values because you touched on it already. Mm -hmm. I also think there's, there's, a, there's a piece in there sometimes, which is making it very clear to your teams that some things are not acceptable. So I've had, and I'm sure you have it, and then most people will have done, had very difficult conversations where somebody or a group of people within an organization have a very different value set to your own. Now that can be absolutely fine, as long as you're very clear on where you, where you will step into and where you won't. But I also think it's really important from an integrity perspective, but also a trust perspective, and this goes back to bravery and courage, that you're brave about saying no. No, I won't do that. I'm not comfortable doing that. And I'm not just not comfortable doing that. I'm not doing that. And that is, for me, the ultimate in bravery and courage. And very few people will do that. And, and I understand why, because often it means that they won't get paid, right? Often it means they won't be able to put food on the table. However, I also think that that often pays dividends because in saying no, about something that feels like a compromised position or something that is going to dent your integrity, you're building trust of the people around you. They will then walk to the end of the earth for you. And that gets results, gets the outcomes, gets the objectives, gets the result the customer wants. Well, so powerful. You've mentioned it two or three times in our discussion so far. Is this element of boundaries, whether it's using your values to set those boundaries, whether it's just having the courage to speak up to maintain those boundaries, you know, it's so important, isn't it, that we know what matters to us and the stuff that we will die for and the stuff we have to put those boundaries up for. You know, we don't, I don't think we talk about that enough as to what matters to us. Completely agree. And that comes back to self-awareness, I think, doesn't it? Which is knowing, you know, not just what you're good and bad at or, or poor at or, or not as good at, but, but also being very clear about when you know you're reaching breaking point mm. and, and getting to that place early enough. So you touched on these people suffering in work. There's absolutely no excuse for that. Now, we can blame the organisations, we can blame the leadership, but we also need to take self-accountability. And self-awareness is, is, you know, a buzzword, or certainly was a buzzword around, you know, making sure we, we, we know exactly how we're feeling, doing something about that, having coping mechanisms. But actually, we shouldn't need coping mechanisms. There should be a red flag system for one of a better description. That sounds terribly project management. <laughs> but there should be some means of us identifying well before we fall off the cliff of, of, of well-being that I'm not feeling good today and therefore I'm not going to do my best work. Now, it's not practical to take a day off often. 
But what it is practical is to step away for five or 10 minutes and say, do you know something? I need to breathe. I need to stretch. I need to go outside. I need to eat. Because often that's what we don't do. Um, uh, you know, I really need to just take that five or 10 minutes out because I am just not being productive. Mm. And do you know, I just can't get away from your point as well. You said about effectiveness versus speed or, or being fast. And I just think all of this is coming back to the same pot, isn't it? Which is, and that's what you said at the beginning. We tied your identity, you know, you tie, we tie us so much of our identity to work. I think it's so important that we do. I heard another um, comment, work-life quality, which I quite like. You know, it's just around this, you know, we do have one being. You know, we are one human being connected to seven and a half billion other human beings. But we seem to operate as if we're, ironically, robots. (laughs) Yeah, and and you're so right, because technology is is managing us rather than the other way around. Technology is absolutely brilliant. I, I don't know how on earth we would run these global projects without it. However, it, absolutely to your point, we're not just robotic in our, in our way of working, but often in our way of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it strikes me that we can make those decisions for ourselves, but very importantly, you're never going to get judged for want of a better description. You're never going to, to, to um, uh, successful is the wrong word. I, I guess my point is more around output rather than input. I could work a 12-hour day, 16-hour day forever. But if I don't achieve anything in that 12, 18-hour day, it's absolutely useless. If all I do is respond to email, I'm just reacting. It's, it's, it's really interesting, Joe. So I wrote a blog, I think it's on Monday. This was, I can't remember. And it's really interesting. So I wrote about marginal gains. Okay. okay. Yeah, awesome. So I've had a lot of discussion the last six to nine months where people have said to me, and I'm sure they say it to you a lot, how do you get so much done in a day? Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, three years ago, I had the same number of hours, minutes, days in my life, mm-hmm. but I got probably a half of much done that was of value to me and to those around me. Yeah. Why? Because I was doing the, you're not good enough. You don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. Who's getting that job now? Who's getting in the way? Mm-hmm. I'm afraid to speak up and challenge. You know, everything is so internal. And I only realised that in the last 12 months. We're so looking, aren't we, for the leader, for the organisation, for somebody else yeah. to get our stuff in order for us. Yeah. But when we realise it's all on us, mm-hmm. it's actually quite freeing. But I don't think we're taught that, or we're not, we're not shown that way early enough in life for me. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting point, Gary. And, and uh, thanks for sharing that, because my, my uh, sort of where I got that bravery from, or that courage, was being on my own in India at 19. And it was a ridiculous thing to put myself into. But actually, in hindsight, um, and now I have children, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to do it as well. Um, however, you're absolutely right. No one's coming to rescue you. Now, you know, we rely on these phones, don't we, as being the ultimate in security and safety. Well, by the way, there are as many murders and muggings and everything else with them as there were before. And, and you know, as I point out to my kids quite regularly, if I didn't need a phone to travel around India on my own for six months, and of course I met family and friends on the way, but you know, off and on for that period of time, then you sure as hell don't need one to go down to the shops, right? But that actually is a really important point, which is around that fear. The fear that if I don't have this umbilical cord of so-called safety, that something will happen. Well, by the way, you've got yourself to, to sort out first. The phone's not going to sort, solve your problems. The phone isn't going to keep an eye on who's walking behind you. The phone isn't going to 
teach you how to be streetwise. The phone isn't going to help you be courageous and brave. And those life skills, as you say, can come to you at any point. But I think what strikes me is you're absolutely right. In a corporate environment, we go from institution to institution. We've gone from school. We might have gone to college or university, say for tertiary education, or we might not. And then we go into another institution. And at no point are we taught those life skills. Mm. Now, we might be if we study martial arts. We might be if we study jurisprudence or philosophy. We might be if we travel a lot. And we might be if we have a great group of friends who challenge our thinking. But that's a might. That's not a given. Slightly off piece, dear Gary. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's, it's very on piece. It's, it's very on piece, to be honest, this courage element and how, because I think it's super. And I think what came up for me as you describe that, which is actually really powerful. You said you move from institution to institution. I genuinely feel the reason so many people act like robots yeah. is because they feel institutionalized. They don't know how to act as that they've never gone deep enough in themselves. And this is, I'm going to get a bit spiritual and woo woo now because I've only woken up to this myself the last nine months is that when you realize everything is your thinking. So I had my mentor, I burnt myself out three years ago. And at that time I thought it was the line manager, the organization, that person crossing the road. You know, but what I realized afterwards on this retreat was, is my own thinking about me. And what I was saying in that moment was it wasn't the fact that I, I challenged bullying in the workplace. So I was one of those guys that did have the courage to speak up and say, my values, my boundary is no. I was bullied to age 12, 13. I'm not having it in the workplace. But I was sent away by that line manager at the time who said, leave it alone. He's got something on going at home. So instead of me going, that's a data point. It's not causal on my well-being. It's just a data point. He's, he's clearly in a low quality of mind. I told myself, you're on your own, Gary. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. Yeah. And once you realize, actually, it's all on you, it's actually freeing. Like, I want people to hear our conversation. It's not a negative that it's all on you. It's incredibly freeing. Yeah, absolutely. That's because... my, sorry, that's my little rant as well. <laughs> I think that's, that's so valuable, Gary, because... As you say, we often don't find these things out until quite late in life. And, you know, midlife crisis is a reality. I'm waiting for the red Porsche, but, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but, but, you know, um, that aside, we, we, we like to sort of say, oh, it's spiritual, woo-woo. You know, it's actually lifestyle. So what it's saying is it's not just building a series of coping strategies for ourselves, but it's allowing us to do our best work. Now, that is a value for any institution, whether it's, you know, the NHS, whether it's a corporate business, whether it's a charity, whether it's a school, whether it's working in the home, that's a huge value to the people around you. Because what that essentially means is that things like blame kind of go away. Because if you're accountable and you're self-aware, you generally don't do that. You don't point at the people next to you and say, well, it's not my problem, it's theirs. Now, that's great in an organisation if you've got rid of blame. Yeah? It also means that you're probably less fearful, which is the second biggest issue in most organizations and most institutions. So you've got rid of blame, or well, you haven't got rid of it, but you put blame in a box and you've said, okay, I can manage blame. But you've also said, I've actually also put fear in a box and I'm managing fear as well. Now, those two things are the biggest blockers to success, the biggest blockers to um, doing and getting stuff done anywhere, in any situation. And how interesting that they are both created by us. You know, the organization at the end of the day doesn't create blame. 
it's human beings that create the environment that's conducive to those things coming up, yeah. And it's creating a kind of um, safety net of well-being, or whatever you want to call it, a sort of bubble around you, which says, I'm not bulletproof because I'm human, and it's okay to be vulnerable, and it's okay to be emotional. What's not okay is for me to react to everything. And more importantly, it's not what's going on around me, it's how I react to it. So I think you asked me a question earlier on, Gary, which is, you know, how do you bring these things together? Well, it's up to me how I react to all of the pressure being put on me. Now, if I decide that it's insurmountable pressure, then I need to work out a plan for pushing back on it, saying no, building a boundary, whatever, whatever you want to describe it as. But more importantly, it's their pressure, not mine. Yeah? That's so powerful. That's so, so powerful. That realization for people listening to us that actually that downward pressure that feels like it's yours on your shoulder isn't yours. However, we can empathize with that person and go, okay, where's that coming from for you? Mm-hmm. I'll help you as best I can, but here's my limit. Mm-hmm. It's having those adult, adult conversations isn't it, rather than the parent child dynamic, which is so often prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes parents like, um, you know, we talk about parent-child, but in, in a lot of organisations, there isn't the empathy, the care, and the due diligence in place. So there'll be very much a, you know, I'm cracking the whip and that's all that I've got. You know, we need to build organisations where we don't have to work like that, where we don't have um, shareholders or the excuse of a CEO breathing down our necks. We have an organisation that works on the basis of trust, we have much less of that fear culture where your employees aren't servants and slaves, where your employees are valued people who don't just add, add value to organization, but who bring something different. You know, all of the places I've worked have done well simply because they've identified that Gary is different to Joe is different to Jim. And that's so important because Gary will bring a very different way of looking at a problem to Joe. And if we're talking about creativity, forget art for a moment, forget sort of obvious um, outlets for creativity. Business is about being creative. It's about problem solving. And if you can work on the basis of an organization having lots of different ways of solving a problem, horrible expression, skinning the cat, um, uh, you know, lots of different ways of doing it, then you're going to get the goal and the problem solved quicker. And you're going to have a thriving organisation that hopefully is more profitable. And most importantly, the wheels are on the bus and it doesn't feel painful. So you don't have fear and you don't have um, blame issues. It's, it's really interesting. If I sort of summarise our conversation so far, it's really about this whole, like really do see the individual, but their collective power. Mm-hmm. Allow those individual gifts to show up but in the aim of being part of a collective that helps get the job done rather than here's the job that needs to be done. You lot now go and force feed. However you, however you fit, I don't care. That job needs to be done, which is what a lot of it is in the examples I shared. Whereas actually use that collective wisdom and individuality to get the job done. Yeah. And, and, you know, people, people work at different paces, don't they? At different rates. And, and it takes people a while to get to that place because what we're assuming Gary in, in this conversation and sort of as human beings, I think is that, everybody will get this stuff and you know if if you've worked in an organization for 25 30 years and you've only worked a particular way it's going to take some time to change 
and that's fine. Yeah, I, I have no problem with that, as I'm, I'm very comfortable you don't. Um, it's getting to a place where we can work together for the better good. And okay, well, you like checking your emails five times a day, carry on. If, if that makes you feel comfortable and safe, please do that. So, you know, often I, you know, in, in the early days of, of this kind of journey, I would insist that some of the teams I was working with would turn off their email for large portions of the day because it's a complete waste of their time. However, what I have learned subsequently that for some people that put them into a place where they just couldn't do their best work. So that's fine. And clearly I wouldn't expect a PA or somebody who does need to be an email all the time to do that. But I guess my point is you have to flex and you have to appreciate that not everybody's like you as well. Um, and that some people do like the routine of nine to five. And that's not just because of their family setup. That's because they like that routine. And that's fine. Um, equally, I don't think you can run global projects like that. Um, so you need to have a, another number of the team who operate in a slightly different way. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's about bringing everybody together in a project um, of any sort. And that project might be a business as usual environment. Mm -hmm. So we talk about in, in business, don't we, and in life, it's either a project role or it's a BAU role. Mm -hmm. It's all a project role. <laughs> 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 big, big, big revelation of the podcast. I love it. I love it. No, no it's, it's such a good point. It's like change though, isn't it? This is something that I also find baffling. And again, I've been part of this for many, many decades, only the last year or so, Joe. I'm like, we are change. Like every second stuff's changing. So like, to think that we're on a change project of a particular thing. Yeah. Like, okay, yes, you've got to get that IT system in. That's the project. Yeah. But every single person on that project is changing every single second of every single day. Like, so we are changed, like just yeah, to think that we're not, it's like bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you only have to look at, and I, I don't want to talk about politics because it's just the most hideous situation. <laughs> but, you know, if, if we touched on kind of what's going on in the economy, the economy doesn't just say, okay, we'll be a you, so nothing will change for the next period of time or for your duration of career, you know, your, your career duration. Um, of course, it doesn't work like that. You know, there are certain points of the year. There's year end, there's quarter end, there's end of the month, yeah, whatever it is. But the point is there are cycles and therefore there are projects and mini change pieces that come in. And, and you know, you and I both know that there'll be a different system and there'll be a corporate strategy each year and there'll be a blueprint. And that's essentially setting the tone for a project or, or a series of activities for the 12 month period. Fascinating. Well, as we start to look to wrap up, I, I want to come back a little bit to your you as Joe again, because I just love, I've read, read about you doing an ultra marathon and I just think I've got to put it out there. Like you, you, you're a lovely human being. You're a, you're a corporate hippie and you're also a little bit mad. So tell us about the ultra marathon experience. How did that come about? And uh, is that an annual event, a biannual event? Well, um, I think slightly man might be an understatement. I, I think, yes. <laughs> so about four or five years ago, I was, I, I've always sort of been relatively physically fit, not particularly competitive, but I, I, I do like a, you know, a, a bit of a laugh. And um, I was approaching my 40th birthday, so it must have been about you know, four or five years ago. And uh, no, four years ago. And uh, everyone said, oh, we say, you know, what are you doing for your 40th? And I, I just thought, oh, I don't want to have a party. And so I thought, oh, I'll do something sort of a bit challenging. And um, as with all these things, um, old habits die hard. I think we went out for a boozy meal. Um, and very long story short, I got involved in something called the Ben Nevis Challenge, which essentially involved getting up and down Ben Nevis as quickly as possible, cycling 25 miles in the highlands, and they are not flat, as I discovered afterwards, and then doing a little assault course in a canoe on a lock. 
Um, for some reason, unbeknown to man, because it was absolutely hideous, pain-wise and everything else, it kind of became a bit, a bit addictive. Um, and I then promptly, having said never, never again, and all sorts of other slightly um, ruder versions of that um, during the day and a few days afterwards, because it was really quite uncomfortable. Um, in fact, it was absolute agony. Um, then signed up for another one, and I've done that now for the last four years. Um, this year, um, I'm doing three. I'm two down and I'm one to go. Now, every year I try and choose a small charity, if you like the small guy, back to our kind of earlier conversations, that isn't necessarily well known, suffers through lack of funding, and very importantly, needs a little bit of a boost. Um, so you'll see in some of my fundraising stuff that it's a different charity each year. And, and between us, and I have a motley crew now of slightly bonkers folk who join me on these adventures. And we call it our annual walking holiday, just to kind of slightly work on the sort of psychosomatic ourselves. Uh, yeah, we, we just try and rebrand it so it's not quite as painful. This year I'm doing it for a charity that supported my um, brother and sister-in-law when my sister-in-law came into labour uh, four months early. Um, and Gary, many thanks again for your kind donation. Um, it's a charity that didn't just support them with practical stuff, but from a mental health perspective, really supported the kind of day-to-day -day things that you just don't think about until you have a premature baby. Now, this charity um, didn't support me personally, but the actual um, sentiment was such that 12, 13 years ago, I had um, not a similar situation myself with my first child. So um, one of the reasons I think I probably have <clears throat> a slightly more philosophical view on life and, and corporate life in particular is that I nearly lost my life to um, a placental rupture 13 years ago. And my son was then subsequently born prematurely, not straight away, thank goodness, um, like my, my niece has been. Um, but as a result, of course, when you're fighting life or death, you, you suddenly start to realise what's important. Um, so yeah, back to subject or back to, to, to the question, Gary. I run ultra marathons each year. We don't run, we tend to sort of walk, crawl, swear, <laughs> and do whatever's required to get to the finish. But we do finish. And what I love about them, and there are different folks who join us each year, is that the amazing sense of achievement when you finish 100 kilometers in two days is just extraordinary. And I, I don't do this with ultra athletes or people who have personal besting, you know, marathons. I do this with people who have never done anything like this before, who haven't done any sport for 20 years, who, you know, start training six months before, but struggle to kind of get up the stairs a few weeks, you know, a few months before. So, so you know, this is, this is for me a fascinating kind of um, project, if you like, into how so much of this is mental strength, not physical strength. Now, of course, there are all sorts of physical ailments we discover along the way, um, but it's a fascinating insight into not just my own kind of inner depths, but also how people cope under what I call true physical pressure. Um, it's really hard. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly intend to keep doing them, Gary. Um, and, and I will make sure that you are now added to the mailing list in January where I send out a call to action. Um, because the more the merrier. It's a fantastic, fantastic thing. Well, do it because it's, it's the sort of kick up the backside I need. I keep getting to the gym, then I'm not, then I'm playing squash again, then I'm not. And this, this sounds like the sort of, it's just yeah. that community almost. You've got that community element to this, which yeah. is absolutely lovely. So please tell our listeners, actually, see so your charity, what's the actual name of the charity, just in case anyone's feeling generous listening to us today? Oh, thank you, Gary. It's Adapt Prem Babies UK. 
um, and um, the website or my funding website or, or link is uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Joe Menon. Um, and yeah, we're, we're trying to get over the £2,000 mark this year. Um, and as I said, I've done two ultras already. So we did the Jurassic Coast at the beginning of June, which very nearly finishes off. Um, 2,000 people started, only 1,200 finished. Um, and unfortunately, a couple of helicopter rescues just to really add to the excitement. Not us, I might add. Um, and yeah, that was that was hard. Um, 100 kilometres along the Jurassic Coast. We then did three weeks later, 50 kilometres on the Cotswold Way, which again is not flat. Um, and then at the end of September, do the North Downs, which I'm told isn't too bad until you get to Box Hill. And it's a bit like sort of walking Ben Nevis, apparently right at the end of a 50 kilometre ultra. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that one. Um, and that brings the team back again for our um, hashtag annual walking holiday, <laughs> which it is far from. But um, again, back to that mental game. It really kind of helps us motivate ourselves. Oh, it's lovely. I'll make sure your link's added to the show notes again, just in case anyone listening is feeling generous. Um, in terms of how people can find you, Joe, what's the best way to reach you? Social media, websites, if people want to follow up the conversation with you? Probably the website, Gary, because that then gives you all the links to your social media and my uh, slightly cynical Twitter feed. <laughs> it's www.themojoproject.co.uk. That's amazing. Well, look, I genuinely find you an inspiration, like everything you're doing, how you go about it. Just, I'm saying, real inspiration, Joe. Thanks for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. Feeling is very mutual, Gary. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow, what a conversation with Joe Menon. I hope that you enjoyed that. Just want to share with you a few of my key takeaways one of which was where joe speaks to the fact about getting out of bed to really love what i do to a point that it does not feel like work how lovely is that and how common is that for you the listener i can tell you for me it's not too common not within the sort of day job but outside of that it happens quite regularly in terms of operating within the people environment talking about the future of work talking about rehumanizing the workplace and ourselves that's where i sit into flow very very often and it just makes me think, you know, what shouldn't we be intentionally creating the environments that allow our colleagues and our leaders and everybody within an organization to get to fall back into flow more often? You know, that's where we come from innately. We want to flow, um, but we get started overthinking, we get stuck inside our heads. So I'm wondering, what can we do? What can you do um, if you're listening to this to try and create the conditions within your own role and the wider roles within your organization to, to allow flow to occur more often? And I think linked to that, Joe spoke about saying no about something that will challenge your, in, your integrity. You know, by saying that, you're actually building trust with people that are around you. And that also links to something else Joe spoke about, something I love in um, Brene Brown's work around setting boundaries. You know, I do believe we can get back into that flow state more often if we're not following other people's agendas, if we're not saying yes to everything. So are you a yes person? Do you find that you, you find it difficult to say no? something to have a think about there and if you are one of those people feel free to have a look at the have courage ebook on my twitter account at gary turner zero i pulled together a free um, have courage ebook and this is one of the common um, feedback points was uh, owning our worth and saying no to things also bringing people with you with regards to projects takes time the system alone is not enough this is a fantastic comment by joe she said it's, and this is the bit i really want to hammer home 
It is not about implementing systems in terms of projects or IT projects. It's also about building desire. I can honestly categorically state I've never ever desired any major work change in my 30 years in work. It's never been something that has been communicated or um, enrolled with me. I've never been enrolled into a vision ever with regards to change. So I'm wondering, what about you? Have you ever been enrolled into change in a really positive way? If you have, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you to share that story on social media. And finally, something that really resonates with me, um, when Joe jo spoke early on um, in this conversation about the fact that her, her whole identity was wrapped up in her day job. My goodness, that was me for so, so long until I went bang a few years ago. You know, you listening, myself, we are all way more worthy than just our jobs the job absolutely is important we want to love it we want to be in flow with it but ultimately that is what it is it is work if we can try and reduce the thinking around work such that it becomes something that we love brilliant but if not you know, your identity is not tied to the job that you do your personal self-worth is far more valuable than any monetary worth that your work may derive for you so have a wonderful wonderful day whatever you're doing would really appreciate your feedback. If you can leave um, some feedback on the podcast app on iTunes, that would help this podcast reach more people. The reason I created this 18 months ago is I couldn't find the content going to that deeper level around the human interaction, human emotion, human connection. So if I felt that it was missing, that might mean other people are as well. So it'd be great if you could share this. And until next time, I'm Gary Turner. You can find me at Gary Turner Zero or at the listening organization, one word, .co.uk. Take care for now.